Welcome to the healing potential of cannabidiol, MDMA, and entheogens, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpinyi at a Bioneers conference with Amy Emerson, Martin Lee, and Ralph Metzner. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. There we go. So thanks a lot for coming out. Um, there's, we always draw well with this particular topic. Um, <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do quick intros of our three panelists in the order that they're going to present in. First, Martin Lee, an old buddy of mine from the East Coast um, who moved here long ago, but uh, so long ago means that I'm getting old, which is sad. But um, Martin is, uh, has been one of the great investigative journalists of our generation. Um, he wrote, um, I don't know, quite a few decades ago, but this book, Acid Dreams, he co-wrote, which was an extraordinary exploration of uh, the mind-boggling experiments that the CIA had done with LSD um, starting in the 50s. Um, he's also done really extensive research on right-wing and fascist movements in Europe in, in this book, The Beast Reawakens. And, in, um, and he also has a long involvement with the study of entheogenic substances. And his most recent book, Smoke Signals, A Social History of Marijuana, is really this extremely interesting, multifaceted book that covers a lot of ground. And I guess you'll be signing that, right, I, I hope. Um, they have that there at the bookstore. Um, and Marty has also been, you started a nonprofit called CBD, is that right? The Project CBD, which um, he'll be speaking about, about his research into cannabidiol, um, a component of marijuana that apparently has rather remarkable medical potential. Next up will be Amy Emerson, who is Director of Clinical Research at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which most of you know, our good friend Rick Doblin was the founder of that organization. They have a booth here, and there's great literature, and so you should go out there, and uh, it's out on the grounds. They have a great conference. I just went to it in April in Oakland, and they do really more than any organization in terms of really pushing for actual clinical research on a number of entheogenics, and, uh, but especially MDMA, and especially doing groundbreaking research in PTSD, which is what I think Amy will be talking about. Really important stuff, and they're doing it around the world, and it's really a heroic struggle. Getting DEA permission to, to do studies is something better people than I would do. I, I would lose my mind trying to do that, so I ha feel nothing but admiration for people who can go through those hurdles. Um, and finally, and absolutely not least, a legend, Ralph Metzner, who's spoken here several times at Bioneers, and we're really delighted that Ralph agreed to come back. And he's written so many books, I couldn't even begin to enumerate them. Some of the best collections on psilocybin and ayahuasca, books on green psychology, um, just you know, many, many titles. And Ralph is, of course, uh, you know, someone who participated in the earliest history of the modern resuscitation of psychedelics along with Tim Leary and Ram Dass at, at Harvard. And, uh, and I find that of all those folks who are sort of the pioneers, pioneers of this field going way back, that Ralph has been the, the most interesting thinker. I never know exactly where he's going to come from or what he's going to say, and it's always really fascinating. And so uh, I'm always really excited to have him on a panel. All right, so we're going to lead off with Martin Lee. Thank you very much. Hello back there. Um, CBD and cannabis in recent years have been uh, uh, the focal point of uh, major developments in medical science. Uh, very exciting. And how we got to that point, or how we got to this point we're at now, is an interesting story and very ironic. Because back in the 1980s when Reagan was president, he relaunched or escalated the drug war. And part of that entailed putting a whole lot of money, millions of dollars, into 
uh, research that would explain why marijuana is harmful for the human brain. So they poured money into this, but instead of finding harm, uh, what they ended up doing was supporting research that culminated in one of the major break scientific breakthroughs of our time, the discovery of what's called the endocannabinoid system. In 1988, the first breakthrough, a receptor in the brain was discovered by uh, scientists who were funded by the U.S. government at St. Louis Medical College. This receptor responded to THC, the principal component, the psychoactive component of marijuana. They realized they had something quite significant because these receptors that responded to THC, the cannabinoid receptors, they're called CB1, in the brain and central nervous system was more dominant, more prevalent than any other what they call a G-coupled protein receptor, which includes opiate receptors and so forth. So very significant uh, that this exists in the brain. A few years later, a second cannabinoid receptor, a receptor that responded pharmacologically to THC was discovered, not in the brain and central nervous system, but in the peripheral nervous system, peripheral organs, the immune system. This is CB2. It was assumed by scientists that if you have receptors for these things, there's got to be something in our own bodies that are activating these receptors. They wouldn't be there just for a plant. Uh, and they uh, ended up finding a, a number of what they call endocannabinoids, sort of like our own inner cannabis that we're producing 24-7 that's active in our system. Uh, I won't go into all the names of these things, but there are two major ones, two major receptor systems responding to cannabis, and uh, to uh, endocannabinoids. So what does this endocannabinoid system do? Well, it plays a hugely important role in terms of human physiology and biology. It turns out that it, we, um, when you think of these systems that we studied in, in high school, biological systems, a skeletal system, a, a endocrine system, a re reproductive system, circulatory system, so forth and so on, what the endocannabinoid system does is regulate all the other systems. It's involved in protecting against disease. Endocannabinoid system protects against cancer, protects against degeneration of nerves, protects against PTSD, protects against Alzheimer's. Just an example, and, and I could spend hours just talking about the endocannabinoid system, and this is just simply to lead into discussing CBD, which is really the most exciting of all as far as I'm concerned. Some of what I learned as a journalist while researching and writing smoke signals that these system of receptors in the brain that respond to THC are also involved in regulating neurogenesis, meaning the production of new, the creation of new brain cells in, in adult mammals. All mammals create new brain cells throughout our lives. And it's the, the receptors that respond to cannabis that regulate that process, that are, are firing full speed when neurogenesis is happening. And not only are involved in the cre regulating the creation of new brain cells, but regulating the migration of these undifferentiated stem cells of where they go in the body when they become what they're supposed to be. So that, that in and of itself is, is mind-blowing, you know, and I can rattle off 25 things like that. One other example, to bring it back to the plant now, uh, scientists at uh, Scripps Research Institute near San Diego, this is a major medical research center in the United States, uh, showed that uh, THC inhibits an enzyme that's implicated in the formation of beta amyloid plaque. That's the Alzheimer's. That's the hallmark of Alzheimer's. So THC suppresses the enzyme that's involved in creating the plaque. Now, there's probably a few people here who've tried marijuana, maybe. <laughs> that's, that's good news for you if you're using it uh, in a little bit or on a regular basis, that it has this effect. So cannabis, the plant, it's a dialectical plant. That's how I refer to it in smoke signals. Why do I say dialectical? Because it has compounds in it that have opposite effects. 
So you have THC, the high cause, or tetrahydrocannabinol. Its, its psychoactivity is mediated by these receptors in the brain. When THC hits those receptors, we feel high, we get stoned. For many people, that's very pleasant. For some people, it's not. Then there's another compound, cannabidiol, CBD, which I'm going to focus on in the 15 minutes or so that I've got left, uh, which is quite amazing. It's not psychoactive. It comes from the cannabis plant. It's the only place that exists naturally in the world, CBD. And not only is it not psychoactive, but it can counter the psychoactivity of THC. So what we've learned in the medical marijuana world now in California and other states, that if you have certain products or certain strains of cannabis, depending on how much THC is in there and how much CBD, you can actually have cannabis products that don't get you stoned at all, but have very significant medical effects. So that relationship between the CBD and the THC is quite significant and nuanced. It's more like yin and yang than opposed. In fact, cannabis was a part of the oldest pharmacopoeia that's been assembled by humankind in ancient China. Cannabis was named as one of the five elixirs of immortality, said to confer longevity. And specifically, it was described as a very unique herb because it had both yin and yang energies, male and female, THC and CBD. So I want to talk specifically about CBD. I don't have a lot of time, so I want to rattle through what's going to essentially be just reviewing some of the research that scientists have been doing recently. Contrary to what a lot of people think and what the drug war establishment wants you to think, there's been a tremendous amount of research into cannabis and cannabinoids, these compounds in cannabis, since the first receptor was discovered in 1988. More than 20,000 pages. Most of this is preclinical, meaning not human beings that are being studied. Maybe human cell lines, uh, cancer cell lines from people that are kept alive after after someone has died. They'll do research with that, or animals, or in petri dishes, and so forth and so on. And all this illuminated, uh, you know, that it, in, in quite an ironic way, that, that initial impetus on the part of the federal government to find out how cannabis works in the brain, and they found that rather than harming, it protects. So CBD, first off, it's been used in clinical studies, actually on human subjects in Brazil, which interestingly is one of the countries that's been in the lead of CBD research. Actually, I'm going to read straight from certain um, science abstracts, because cumulatively, it's quite powerful. Uh, but just first off, there's one, a, a study from 2011, Safety and Side Effects of CBD, a Cannabis Sativa Constituent, and, and it concludes that chronic use in high doses are well tolerated in humans. CBD has no known side effects at all. To get into some specific areas in terms of where CBD has therapeutic potential, it's shown in cancer, for starters. There's been extensive, very interesting, groundbreaking research at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. Uh, this is part of the Sutter Health Group. This is a very mainstream medical group. And there's a small research uh, component there, and they've done work with glioblastoma, it's brain cancer, very aggressive brain cancer, and breast cancer. And here's the uh, abstract title from the 2010, Pathways Mediating the Effects of CBD on the Reduction of Breast Cancer Cell Proliferation, Invasion, and Metastasis. Basically, they found that CBD would shrink tumors and stop the breast cancer cell proliferation and metastasis. And they not only identified that it did this, uh, both for breast cancer and brain cancer, but they identified one of the crucial mechanisms whereby CBD confers this anti-tumoral effect, and that's by suppressing or silencing a particular gene called the ID1 gene, which is active in the womb. You know, when a, when a baby is forming and needs a lot of cells created, the ID1 gene is turned on. You're born, it turns off, and it's supposed to stay off, but because of 
what we go through in life, stress or whatever we, come in, we bring into it, that gene can sometimes get turned on. And when it is, it's associated with a dozen different kinds of aggressive cancers, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and others I mentioned. So that's um, one area of research is quite compelling. Uh, usually I show a slide of actually showing the before and after the breast cancer cells, uh, before and after the administration of, of CBD. And you see that basically after the administration that they're just not viable anymore. Another study from the same research institute, I'll read the title here. CBD enhances the inhibitory effects of THC on human glioblastoma and cell proliferation and survival. Key here because they found that THC also has anti-tumoral effects. And they did research, and they, at least for the breast cancer, when THC was used, it would also shrink the tumors. CBD was used, would have even a greater anti-tumoral effect. But when combined together, as in this brain cancer study, they have the most potent effect when the CBD and the THC are combined together in terms of the anti-cancer properties. That's what's most powerful. And that's really, really key in terms of understanding cannabinoid therapeutics because the cannabis plant has several hundred compounds in it, not just cannabinoids. There are said to be over 100 of them. CBD and THC are the major ones. But they have terpenes, the, the components of the plant that give it its smell, which also have medicinal properties, and flavonoids, you know, that give fruit its color, skin uh, Well, there's actually a couple of different flavonoids in, in, in cannabis. It's the only place they exist in the natural, or in the botanical world. All these different components each have their own medicinal effects, but when combined together, uh, they form a kind of a synergy. They form what scientists refer to as a uh, entourage effect, so that the uh, therapeutic impact of the whole plant is greater than the sum of the parts. Just to run through very quickly, because I'm running out of time and I could talk about this for hours, just some of the other conditions for which CBD is showing great promise. January 2011, Seizure Magazine, CBD exerts anti-convulsant effects in animal models of temporal lobe and partial seizures. If you saw the Sanjay Gupta special on CNN a couple of months ago, with focusing on the girl with epilepsy. See, basically what the science is doing, it's validating the experience that medical marijuana patients have in a very, very powerful way. That's what's so great about the science. Now, you know, an animal study is an animal study. You can't necessarily assume that what happens with a rat or a mouse is gonna be the same for a person. But generally, that is what we're finding in California. And it's not only little Charlotte that you saw in, uh, on, on, on CNN that's benefiting from CBD. 300 seizures a week she'd have. Dravet syndrome, it's a pediatric epilepsy, it's intractable seizures. We know dozens of families are using this now. And here's some new breaking information. The US government is now allowing CBD to be administered by doctors as part of an IND program that's just been kind of reinstituted but only for CBD, not for the rest of cannabis. You know, there's four people still alive today that the federal government gives uh, 300 marijuana cigarettes every month to. It's kind of grandfathered in from this old program. That program is now just being revived, but not for marijuana cigarettes, just for CBD and just for kids with epilepsy. So that's an exciting development. CBD as an analgesic. Uh, the non-psychoactive cannabis constituent CBD is an orally effective therapeutic agent in rat chronic inflammatory and neuropathic pain. CBD-rich cannabis, we call it the Project CBD, we call the cannabis that has at least equal amount of CBD in it as, as THC or maybe more, we call it CBD-rich. CBD-rich cannabis is the best thing we're finding for neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain is pain in the periphery. Peripheral nerve pain 
For THC uh, dominant cannabis is very good for that because THC activates those receptors in the periphery. But CBD does more than that. So it, again, the synergism, when you combine the CBD and the THC, it's the best we're finding for neuropathic pain. I'm gonna rattle through these very quickly. From the British Journal of Pharmacology, acute administration of CBD in vivo suppresses ischemia-induced cardiac arrhythmias and reduces infarct size when given at perfusion. What they do is they create, they create a stroke in an, a, in an animal. They create animal models of diseases, and they found when CBD is administered either before or after the stroke is created, the impact of the stroke is lessened. And they found that it suppresses cardiac arrhythmia. You know, there are no big pharma drugs that suppress irregular heartbeat that are healthy to take. So if just that alone from CBD could be developed in a pharmaceutical context, that's amazing, given how prevalent heart arrhythmia is as people get older. CBD is an antipsychotic. CBD, a cannabis sativa constituent, as an antipsychotic drug. This is from Brazil, a study from April 2006. This is something at Project CBD we get a lot of inquiries for people struggling with psychosis and schizophrenia. There is actually clinical trials now at Yale University, pure synthetic CBD, isolated CBD, and schizophrenics, human trials going on. That's also new information. There was actually a study done in Germany, I think it was published last year, comparing CBD to the, the kind of first-line antipsychotic agents, the big pharma drug, which has terrible side effects. And they concluded from this study that CBD was just as effective as an antipsychotic drug without any side effects. So uh, moving on, this is an interesting area that uh, the medical marijuana community isn't uh, as hip as it should be to, but it, this is a study published, uh, the Journal of Natural Products, published by the American Chemical Society in 2008. Again, we're talking totally mainstream, American Chemical Society. And they looked at different cannabinoids from the plant and how they uh, function as antibacterial agents. And this particular study concluded CBD showed potent activity against a variety of methicillin-resistant staph strains, MRSA. You know, that's antibiotic-resistant a bacteria, World Health Organization has identified this as one of the looming health crises of this century because we've gone beyond what antibiotics can do. They've been bred by overuse of antibiotics. CBD in a Petri dish wipes it out. So that's an interesting potential there. Um, I'm going to have to skip some of this, but um, actually this is a good one. This is from um, a patent that was issued by the U.S. government to the Department of Health in 2003, CBD as an antioxidant. And I'm quoting from the patent. Cannabinoids have been found to have antioxidant properties and are found to have particular application as neuroprotectants, for example, in limiting neurological damage following ischemic insults such as a stroke and trauma, or in the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and HIV dementia. This is from the government that's official position is that cannabis has no medical value and is a dangerous drug. So, um, this is the last example I'll, I'll give because I want to sum up with a couple of remarks just in case your mind hasn't been totally blown by CBD. This is from the Journal of Neuroscience in 2007, pertaining to mad cow disease. This was a French study. The title of the study, Non-Psychoactive CBD Prevents Prion Accumulation and Protects Neurons Against Prion Toxicity. Prions are these misshaped protein molecules that are infectious. Mad cow is a prion disease. And there's a lot more of it in the society than is acknowledged, incidentally. I know two people recently who, who have been diagnosed with this. And from this report, it says, CBD may protect neurons against the multiple molecular and cellular factors involved in the different steps of the neurodegenerative process, which takes place during prion infection. So at every phase of prion infection, CBD has this 
you know, amazing neuroprotective effect. I can rattle off, you know, 10 other examples of different conditions. I suggest you look at our website, projectscbd.org, which has on the homepage 50 conditions list listed. You can click on any of them, and you'll, just, you'll see the science abstract, because the science is really, really powerful. And there's a deep poetry to the science also. And, and, and at some point, maybe next time at Bioneers, we'll talk just about endocannabinoid science. I just want to let you know that Project CBD, we're an educational organization, educational service, but really one of the main thing we do is we receive inquiries from people all over the world, from every state in this country, from many different countries around the world. They want to know where they can get the CBD. You don't get it as a pure molecule in the medical marijuana community, but they have now extracts which are made from oil drawn from the plants, from the CBD-rich plants, and they can be made very carefully, very purely, so there's no toxic solvents involved in extracting the oil, and they can be made to any ratio. It could be a 20 to 1 ratio, like little Charlotte was using for her epilepsy, or it could be a 1 to 1 ratio, depending how much person is, uh, tolerates psychoactivity. And, and I think as we are moving toward legalization in general with cannabis in our culture, you know, I don't think that this is going to result in the floodgates opening for lots of people wanting to smoke pot for recreational purposes. I, I assume most people who want to smoke marijuana in America are already doing so. There, there's probably a few people that are holding out, or really that, that the law actually means something. But where it's going to really be a difference, I think, is with, uh, on the medical side. And that you have now CBD, and you have these products that can be made from plants that you can grow in your own backyard or your own closet, and um, can be made in ways that are suitable for those who might not ordinarily reach for cannabis, who, who tried it once in high school and didn't like it, uh, who just don't like the psychoactivity. Many people don't. But now we have products that people can benefit from the med medicinal aspects of cannabis, irrespective of how they feel about getting high. So. Thank you, Marty. All right. So next up is Amy Emerson of MAPS. Wow, I'm completely blown away by Martin's talk. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Before I knew the path was through the battlefield, but I could not get through it. During MDMA therapy, I knew I could walk through it, and I wasn't afraid. MDMA gave me the ability not to fear. This is a quote from Donna, who was our first subject in a US MDMA PTSD study. And it's a really powerful statement for someone who had suffered from, for eight years prior to this with PTSD. Here's a summary of a conversation that we had with a vet just before his one year follow-up. Being in Iraq was bad, but what was worse was having my body back here and part of my mind still in Iraq. Being in this study allowed me to bring the rest of myself home. But there are a lot of vets who, are still haven't, who still haven't fully come home. There are many, many more quotes like this that we have from participants who have benefited from being in our studies. And hearing their experiences is a large part of why I'm motivated to do the work that I do, the very difficult work of trying to make MDMA into prescription medicine. So today we're going to talk about how MDMA works in PTSD therapy and the results that we're getting from our ongoing studies. So, we're a nonprofit research and educational organization um, founded in 1986 by Rick Doblin. 
And today I'm going to be talking about just one piece of our overall mission, which is our work as a nonprofit pharmaceutical sponsor. Specifically, I'm going to talk about the MDMA PTSD work, but I feel like I want to give you a little bit about the bigger picture of where this fits into MAPS vision. MAPS vision is as a, a world where psychedelics and marijuana are legally available for beneficial uses, like what Martin was talking about, and where research is governed by scientific evaluation of the risks risk and benefits and not by misinformation and fear. Our efforts are geared towards creating a shift from a prohibition-based policy on drugs that uses scare tactics to prevent drug use, and this is a system that actually leads to more harm and misinformation to the public. We want to see a post-prohibition policy that provides science-based information about the harms and benefits of drugs, as well as provides true harm reduction efforts to the public. This shift is slowly happening, and we can see it because we're more easily to move forward in our um, psychedelic research over the past few years. It took a long time to get the first studies approved, but now we're moving forward with four studies that are ongoing in MDMA PTSD. Our efforts are still actually being blocked in marijuana research with NIDA. We want to use marijuana to um, treat symptoms of PTSD. But it is nice to see that there is, there is marijuana research going on, but there's still um, a large political shift that still needs to happen. We're also seeing a shift in the acceptance of our harm reduction efforts at festivals, um, which has grown out of the work that we've done at Burning Man with a Zendo project. At the Zendo, we're able to offer support to people having difficult psychedelic experiences. We're getting more and more um, positive response to this work, and we were able to actually work closely with authorities this year at Burning Man to help people instead of see them arrested for, or hospitalized for unnecessarily during a difficult experience. Now, there's obviously sometimes when people need to have hospitalization, but many times they just need somebody to help them through the experience. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done for this view to be widely accepted. And um, so there's actually many interesting avenues for clinical research in psychedelics, including neuroscience, creativity, meditation, spirituality, helping people heal relationships, treating addiction, and processing emotions at the end of life. And as I said, I'm going to talk about just the MDMA PTSD program from here on out, and this is our priority project, and it's currently in phase two clinical studies. So all the information I'm going to share with you is obviously available because of the hard work of many people. I just get to be the one to hear to talk about it with you today. And, and not just the many people that are doing this research, but all the people that created the foundation for this research, people like Ralph and many of our psychedelic community that has done this research for a long time and who all of our studies are built on. So I just want to acknowledge that. Okay, so let's get into the MDMA PTSD. I should start with what is PTSD. Most of you probably already know. You hear it on the news with veterans who are coming home from the war. That's post-traumatic stress syndrome. It occurs after a traumatic event takes place such as military combat, sexual assault, or even a bad accident. So there's an event happens, and then after it passes, the fearful memories are still there, and the symptoms don't resolve in one month. So that's like the technical definition. It's present in about 10% of the general population and 14% of military personnel returning from war. It's typically accompanied by depression, suicidal thoughts, and an increase in addictions. There's only two approved medications for PTSD, that's Paxil and Zoloft, and both are really just to manage symptoms and actually, one-third of the PTSD population is treatment-resistant to both psychotherapies that exist now and to those two medications. This is a group we work with. They're the chronic treatment-resistant group. And on average, people in our studies have had PTSD for 19 years, so they're very treatment-resistant. 
So what is MDMA and why do we think it can help PTSD? MDMA is a Schedule I drug, which means, according to the DEA, it has no known medical use, kind of like marijuana. <laughs> no known medical uses, right? <laughs> Um, it was first synthesized by Merck in 1912, and it's considered to be an empathogenic drug of the phenylethylamine and amphetamine class. It's widely known as ecstasy, or lately in the news as molly. Typically, both are of questionable purity, and it would be really hard to compare them to what we use um, as a very pure MDMA in our clinical studies. MDMA has a long history of being used in therapy up until 1985 when it was scheduled, and then even since then underground and much of this history is what helped build the current clinical studies that we work on. So why do we think MDMA works for PTSD? I want to talk about this by comparing and contrasting the way PTSD and MDMA affect people's moods, affect their behaviors, the brain, and the endocrine system. MDMA provides a path. It provides a path through symptoms. So how, could this, how is it working? Let's compare the subjective symptoms of someone with PTSD and then let's look at the effects of MDMA. PTSD is fear-based. It's a disorder triggered by a traumatic event. It's chronic, debilitating, and um, it's usually characterized by being hypervigilant, fear, defensiveness, numbing, nightmares, intrusive emotions, withdrawal, and lack of trust. Not a very nice way to experience your life. Here are some, then, the effects of MDMA. Decreased fear, decreased defensiveness, increases trust, increases empathy. It allows people to have affirming experiences and gain perspective on their situation. It's gentle and profound, but not always in an easy experience, and we often hear um, this, why is this called ecstasy from people in our trials? Because it's difficult what they're going through. It's not what you think of of kids out partying, you know, and dancing all night. It's not always a fun experience for somebody that's processing difficult emotions. But it allows people to be present with that and emotionally connected during the experience that they have so that then they can take back that, those insights that they have and they can integrate them over time. So we have a treatment manual that guides how we do this treatment. And in that manual, we summarize this idea. And it's actually an idea that um, comes from one of Ralph's articles. <laughs> a combined treatment of MDMA with psychotherapy can attenuate the fear response, decrease defensiveness without blocking access to memories, and encourage a deep, genuine experience of emotion. Here's a quote from somebody in, a, in the study. As interesting as the sessions are, I know from experience now that it's even more interesting what happens after the sessions when you start making the connections. So MDMA also offers a path through the brain. We can see these same ideas of fear and the suppression of fear in the model of the brain. In imaging studies, people with PTSD or when they do models of conditioned fear that they use to study PTSD, you see hyperactivation in the amygdala area of the brain. And this is the blue and um, orange area in the image there. Um, this area is also responsible for processing emotional memories. So you can see a decreased activity also in that prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for thought processing. So in contrast, when you administer MDMA and you do brain imaging, you can see a suppression of the activity in the amygdala, which is the fear and emotional memory spot, and you see an increased blood flow in the prefrontal cortex, where thoughts are processed. So the activity in the brain supports the idea that PTSD is a fear-based disorder and MDMA can work to counteract the symptoms in the brain. So here's a quote from one of our participants that I think demonstrates this nicely. It's like PTSD changed my brain and MDMA changed it back. <laughs> it's great, huh? <laughs> it helped me in so many ways. It feels like it's gradually rewiring my brain. It feels like the MDMA sessions were the crack in the ice. Because the trauma was so solid before that, it took a long time to integrate, it was confusing, 
but gradually I found that I could get back to that kind of state on my own. It was incredibly intense around the MDMA sessions. It was a lot like a big bubble from the unconscious had popped. It brought up a lot and it took time to slow down. So again, we see these same ideas um, of changes in fear and trust reflected in the endocrine system. People with PTSD have decreased levels of feel-good hormones and increased stress. MDMA turns on all the faucets in the brain. The main molecules that are released in MDMA um, are serotonin along with some norepinephrine and dopamine. So this is a neurotransmitter cascade and it leads to the release of what we call prosocial or feel-good hormones that you might have heard of like oxytocin, vasopressin, cortisol, and some DHA. DHEA. Um, these are actually similar hormone release to what happens when, pe when people are hugging, uh, when, some, when you're bonding with an infant, or post-orgasm. These hormones are involved in emotional changes, and there's actually a study that was done that shows this by measuring responses to faces. Um, they showed that these hormones that I just talked about are present after MDMA is ministered. And it causes an increased emotional empathy and a decreased reaction to a fearful, angry, or sad face when people are showed the faces when they're on MDMA. And then we also see the same kind of thing mirrored in our, in our um, therapy sessions. So on multiple levels, you can see why we think PTSD with MDMA is a natural fit. MDMA creates this pathway through the fear and defensiveness to a place where people find empathy from the, for themselves and they can make connections, they can process the trauma. It's, they, they are able to do this instead of being caught in this conditioned fear response that they've been in. They're able to come back out of a session because they, you're able to, to be present still during the session, even while you're on the MDMA and while you're going through these intense emotions. You're able to bring back insights and then have sessions later without the drug to help integrate them. So here's, here's another statement from one of our participants. After you've ridden a few of those waves of fear, it gets easier and easier to trust the next one. So usually in um, talk therapy, people have a hard time trusting going through that fear because they're just getting re-traumatized. So this is a break in that. I want to give you a little bit of an idea of what happens during a course of treatment. Okay. So this is um, a big commitment to people that go in the, into treatment. There's five to ten months of active participation when with one year of follow-up. The participants are screened to make sure they're eligible, and then they have three preparatory sessions with their co-therapy team. They're randomized to either an active or placebo arm of the study. Um, and then they are administered MDMA three times during the study, about a month apart. And each session is about eight hours, followed by an overnight stay, and then three integrative sessions over the next month before they have the next MDMA session. So we measure the PTSD severity at baseline, and then after the second and third MDMA session, and at one year follow-up. People in the comparator group are able to go through the study. They go through two MDMA sessions in the comparator group. We on blind, and they're able to repeat using full-dose MDMA. So this is a room where um, treatments take place. It's very typical of the rooms in all of this, the settings, but this one spe is specifically in South Carolina with Michael and Annie Mithofer. You can see a lot of attention is paid to creating a supportive setting. It's very important that um, people can have a place to let go that they build up trust with their therapy team. They spend, um, they see their therapy team. It's always a male and female co-therapy team. They see them between 19 and 30 times during the study. And so they spend a lot of intense time with that team and in this room. Um, and the basic premise of our approach during the um, MDMA therapy is not that the MDMA is doing all of the work. It's 
not in itself the therapy. It's the powerful tool that the therapist and participant have to use during the therapy. We think that the reduction in fear created by the MDMA is just a window. It's supported by interacting with the therapists during and after the MDMA experience. So the therapists use a non-directive approach. Um, they maintain a presence that's supportive um, with the, what is going on in the moment with the person. There's alternating periods of inner focus and talking. Um, and the participants are always encouraged to fully experience and express whatever arises rather than avoiding or suppressing. And there's many diff different types of therapy that arise during one session um, in response to the need of the participant. And we have our whole therapy manual online if anybody wants to read the whole thing. But those are some of the very basic ideas of it. So data. What happens after this happens, this, after we have these sessions? This is data from our first study with Michael and Annie. And to me, when I look at it, I, it's not just data. This is like a picture of hope to me, right? The, the, everyone entering the study had severe treatment-resistant PTSD. They'd been suffering for a very long time, about 19 years. They were disconnected from themselves and family. That scale that you see on the vertical axis from 0 to 90 represents the severity of the PTSD. And this is done by, measured by CAPS, the Clinician's Administered Post-Traumatic Stress Scale. It's a gold standard for measuring PTSD, and we use it in all of our studies. You had to have a score of 50, which indicates moderate PTSD, to enter the study. But you can see that people entering our study were well above moderate range. They had a score of 80 on average, and this is considered to be extreme PTSD. So the, the first study was mostly women survivors of sexual assault or childhood sexual abuse and there was two male veterans of the Iraq War. There were two treatment groups, full dose and placebo, both followed a similar schedule from the previous slide that I showed you of the three doses of MDMA. And this is what we saw. And the full dose group, full dose plus therapy, so it's always MDMA plus therapy, not just the MDMA, right? We saw, that's the orange line, so this, this right here is the results. After the first MDMA session, the mean cap score dropped below 50. After the second, it dropped further, and two months later, it dropped below 30. Most people in the study no longer even qualified as having PTSD. And remember, these people had tried all kinds of treatments in the last years. So this is an incredible result. It's not just an incredible result. It represents an incredible profound change in like individual people's lives, right? In the placebo group, that's the blue line. There was a drop in the CAP score from um, therapy alone, but it didn't drop below 50. So they still all had, at least had moderate to severe PTSD. And uh, we didn't want to leave those people untreated. So we let them cross over into the full dose study. So just um, this is where they were at the start of the study. This is where they were after stage one with placebo. And this is what happened after they had the full dose MDMA sessions. They dropped after two sessions um, and then again, and then dropped completely below to 30, just like that full dose group did. Okay. So we want to know, does this last? Well, actually, I want to show you. We also have another study. We want to make sure this is repeatable. So we have a study in Switzerland that we did that had similar results. Um, it was smaller, so it was, we, we could see a similar effect size, but the results weren't as dramatic. So we want to do some bigger studies. We have them going on now. And right now, we have a VET study. And this is some preliminary data from a study that includes veterans and um, 
first responders. So there's two firefighters and 10 vets in this study right now. So you can see a similar trend, right? It's that starting up very high on the cap, severe PTSD, and then we have three dose groups in here, and both our 75 milligram and 125 milligram doses are having a substantial effect on the PTSD symptoms. Um, there's an average drop between 59 and 30 in those two groups. And I just want to contrast this with the two drugs that are approved for PTSD are Zoloft and Paxil. They got approved with a 9 and 10 point drop in the caps. <laughs> so do these results last? The answer quickly is yes. This is from 17 to 74 months after um, the last session for people in our first study. So that's three and a half years. We saw sustained benefits. There was two people that relapsed, um, but 88% of people had sustained benefit. And of those two people that relapsed, we got permission to give them one more MDMA session and their caps dropped again. We're not seeing any um, drug-related serious adverse events. We're seeing the normal um, published common reactions you know, teeth grinding, sleeplessness right after we administer. Everything goes away within a couple of days after the MDMA session. We're not, we um, saw no statistical differences between the active dose group and the placebo group in cognitive function, blood pressure, heart rate, body temperature, any of those things that you would be concerned about. Then after seeing those results, everybody wants to know, well, this is wonderful, so how long before it's a medicine? That's kind of the difficult news, is that we think it'll be another eight to 10 years to go through all of the clinical studies to develop MDMA into a medicine. So we're currently enrolling four phase two studies, um, and that they'll cost about 1.7 million um, total to complete, and then we'll go to our end of phase two meeting with FDA, we'll present our phase three design to them, and then it will take another three to five years to complete phase three, cost about $15 million. Um, and then another one to two years for the FDA approval process. So um, if anybody has extra mil millions uh, laying around in the next couple of years, we could put it to a really good use in these, uh, in these studies. And we have, of course, more information online and um, at, at our table. And I'll be happy to answer questions after this. Thank you, Amy. Boy, you can see how heroic that is, 10 years of, of work. So. Any millionaires out there, come forward and, and talk to us. And now, without further ado, really one of the great pioneers in this entire field, it's a great joy to present you, Ralph Metzner. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your attention. So it is kind of striking, isn't it? Um, so I'm always thinking about how strange it is here, it's these studies showing this incredibly beneficial therapy for a condition. So Rick Doglin tells me there's something like um, 350,000 veterans suffering in the United States alone, suffering from PTSD. So here's this study that's been done and about 10 or 12 of them are getting this therapy it's very effective at the cost of millions and millions of dollars. But actual veterans getting it for their treatment are nowhere in sight. This is a very strange thing to think about. See, why is that? It's a kind of a hopelessness-inducing thought, and I worried about it a, lo a long time. And I thought, isn't there, isn't there some way to break through this kind of logjam? You know, so you've got these studies, but that doesn't mean veterans can get it. The veterans who's traumatized can't get it. But then I, uh, I was in conversation with somebody who is in a position to know, and uh, he told me, um, actually, 
the veterans who are traumatized, there's several hundred thousand veterans who've been traumatized, half a dozen or so have gotten treatment in access to MDMA therapy. And, um, but MDMA is used by millions of people. Millions of people. It's easier for you and I or anybody to get uh, MDMA on the street, ecstasy, high quality, than it is for a psychiatric researcher to get it to do research studies. This person who is in a position to know, he said, actually, the veterans are doing it themselves. They themselves are getting the ecstasy and are treating their buddies who have PTSD because they themselves have, it's the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, model, it's the ex-alcoholic. They are actually the best people, better than the psychiatrist or the psychologist because they have got the experience themselves. And they can get it, and they can set up the session. It doesn't take a lot of technical expertise or training to set up an MDMA session for somebody else. So that was one of the most helpful pieces of underground news I heard in a long, long time. <laughs> and I think it's, it's beautiful, you know? And uh, so MDMA is a remarkable drug. Uh, as, uh, among all the so-called psychedelic drugs, which means consciousness expanding, I want to talk about it. I think it's actually the best therapy drug, better than LSD or psilocybin because um, it only changes, expands awareness on the emotional band. I remember the first I was working, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist, and I was working in, in therapy with MDMA successfully, you know, before it became illegal, <laughs> and I had to stop doing it in order not to become a criminal and, and go to jail. Same thing happened to me, it's happened to me twice in my life, the same, I did successful work with LSD therapy and then I had to stop, not because anybody complained or was harmed, but because it was made illegal at, at another, another whole level social political system that had nothing to do with the therapy. So anyway, I remember him saying, and he had a lot of experiences, everything looks just the same, but I feel completely differently about it. See, that's the key. You're not getting visions and hallucinations. If you've been traumatized, you don't want to get visions and hallucinations. You want to stop the flashbacks. You want to be able to see what you're seeing with equanimity. See, the term equanimity, and I coined the term empathogenic for uh, MDMA-like substances, generating a state of empathy. And it's interesting because it secretes the hormone prolactin, which is the nursing hormone which is also another advantage for in terms of therapy because it doesn't stimulate sexual feelings at all. That's why people can take it at the raves and hug and sit with one another and there's no sexual improprieties going on and there's no sexual feelings going on in the therapy session, which is very helpful for the therapists <laughs> and the clients. <laughs> I think this research is beautiful and it's important. I just you know, would like to make you aware of the sort of underlying kind of contradictions in the social system around this. The other area of research with drugs that I think I'd like to emphasize in its importance, and I think is incredibly important, is the work on end-of-life anxiety with uh, psilocybin, not MDMA so much, because MDMA stimulates the life force. When you're end-of-life, you want the detachment and the withdrawal, kind of the opposite. So psilocybin, LSD, small doses, and the work done by Charles Grobe, and others uh, is tremendously important because here's another thing to think about. You know, a certain percentage of veterans have got PTSD and other people, non-veterans, got PTSD as well. But everybody's life ends. Everybody dies. And everybody has a certain amount of end-of-life anxiety. It's been with us for thousands of years. And part of that has, you know, is for social uh, religious reasons because in the West, we don't have any conception of the afterlife. 
We have no conception of the afterlife. The common view is at the end of life, you just die and that's it, goodbye. Nothing, nothing happens. And that's not true. And it never has been true. Well, you might say, well, how do we know that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> if that's the position you want to be in, then that's okay. But in all cultures, except the Western sort of Christianized cultures, Christianity abolished the idea of the afterlife. It reduced the idea of an afterlife to this threefold thing of heaven, hell, and purgatory, which is kind of pathetic. It's a pathetic reduction of the actuality of the afterlife. The use of psilocybin, and it is a credit to the FDA and the regulatory authorities that they have permitted studies of end of life using psilocybin for a condition where they, it's known, it's not gonna, you know, people who have terminal diagnosis, gonna, they know they're gonna die within six months. So there's no pretense this is gonna cure their cancer or, but to uh, alleviate the anxiety around the end of life. On my website, I have links to two short video clips of studies from Charles Grobe's uh, studies of people talking about their psilocybin study at the end of life. They're incredibly moving. So if you have somebody in your family that you know about who is um, looking at end of life and dealing with end of life anxiety, just even seeing the film and thinking about it, I think can have a very beneficial effect. So I want to say a little bit about the concept of altered states, which is often used. I have come to the point where I don't like to use it anymore because altered somehow sounds pathological. You know, altered farm animals are castrated animals, actually, which kind of doesn't sound very positive. It also applies that there's a kind of a normality and that the altered is somehow abnormal. And what I want to do, and what I've done, been doing in my writings, and I, I've, I've written a series of seven books on the ecology of consciousness, and one of them is called Mind, Space, and Time Stream, which talks about different states of consciousness. And I want to get the idea across that every state of consciousness has its own way of looking at time, experiencing time and space. We're in a state of consciousness right now. Did you know that? It's called the normal waking state, <laughs> the ordinary functional waking state. It's a period of time. It lasts from the time you wake up to the time you fall asleep. Then you have the sleep state, and then you have the dreaming state, which is different. Brain waves are different. And uh, Indian and Buddhist uh, traditions recognize a fourth state, which is kind of a meditative state. Those are different states of consciousness we all cycle through every day in our life. Alterations, totally normal, totally functional, common. You know. And then there are less usual states, meditative states, so I like the notion of states of consciousness. It's a period of time in which you're thinking, you're feeling, you're experiencing functions according to certain set parameters. And when you're in a different state, the time-space parameters are different. For example, in a dream, you can dream of visiting your grandmother who lives in Florida and it doesn't take you five hours to get there. You're as close as you feel. And you can have a great conversation with her and exchange all kinds of messages and then come back and it's taken no time at all. It's subjective time. You see, time is completely different. And in every dark state that we know, you know, you wake up in the morning, you might have been in a, some kind of a dream, and then doing various things, and then you wake up and you realize, oh, here's, I'm in my bed, and in my room, and here's my husband and wife, and here's the dog, and oh, there's my job, and you know, immediately, we, this is a profound alteration of state of consciousness. So alterations of consciousness happen all the time. I want to get across the idea that it's very normal. And then we want to look at the states of consciousness and what's their function. You know, and expanded and contracted states, for example, 
the waking up is an expansion state, and Buddhist and Hindu and spiritual traditions talk about waking up, becoming more aware. But it's not that waking up is waking, expansion is good, and contraction is bad, because contraction is also important. It's called concentration. If you're giving a piano recital, or you're taking an exam, or if you're driving a car, or you're doing surgery, you want to be very, very concentrated. You don't want to be admiring the butterfly outside the window and uh, you know, be aware of the beauty of the sunset or anything like that. You want to concentrate. That's called concentration. Consciousness or awareness can concentrate, contract, and focus, or it can expand and relax where you get new insights, new perspectives, new insights in therapy. That's why the application in therapy. See, the alcoholic who takes the consciousness-expanding drug or the traumatized vet who sees the consciousness-expanding drug, he is able to see the traumatic situation from another perspective. The trauma concentrates, but concentration in itself is not bad either, but you want it to be under your own control. If your concentration is under the external control of some stimulus, that's called addiction or compulsion. You know, I've got to have the drink, I've got to have the drug, I've got to do this. It's a concentration on the focus. It's motivated by fear and rage are the two things that focus and contract our awareness. If you're in a state of rage, you're not interested in anything else that's happening. You have to get out of the state of rage before you can do any therapies. That's why therapy, rageaholism is notoriously difficult to therapy. Now, fear is also concentrate. And uh, all the therapists dealing with fears and anxieties, including using LSD or MDMA or any of those, allowing, reducing the anxiety so awareness can expand and so you can look at the, what are the possibilities, what's really going on. Then I want to just come back to the hypothesis that my old colleague and, and friend Tim Leary came up with. It's called the set and setting hypothesis, which has been widely accepted in the field of uh, drug research that uh, with this particular class of drugs, this is not so necessarily true of any other kind of drugs, but including stimulants, ordinary stimulants and ordinary depressants, or barbiturates or uppers and downers basically, they up, bring you up and they bring you down. I mean, the setting is a little bit basal role, but with the so-called psychedelic drugs or consciousness expanding drugs, it plays the critical role. And you can't really describe, somebody asks you, like my daughter asked me when she was a young person, you know, what does this drug do? Or somebody asked me, well, you can't really say what it does. It depends completely on the setting to even take MDMA. So the person who's doing it, using it for therapy uh, for PTSD has one kind of experience. The person who takes ecstasy and goes and dances at a rave has a completely different experience. They're not getting therapy. That's not the intention, you see. It's the set and the setting, the intention of those two, the set, the intention is actually a crucial, the most crucial. And my sort of amended formula that I talk about is that the intention directs, and I use an arrow to point, directs the attention, and the attention directs the awareness. So the intention, like you have an intention coming here and uh, hearing me talk, and I have the intention of meeting with you and talking with you in, in this space. So you're giving me your attention, for which I thank you. In German, you say, you schenk die Aufmerksamkeit, which is a, give, is a gift of attention, you see. It's not just passively taking in, it's an actual gift. Lending me your ears, as Julius Caesar said. <laughs> and uh, then the attention acts as a selector. 
Now, that selection can be overridden. For example, if a naked woman walked in the room, then our attention would be interrupted, you see, and we would all go there. You wouldn't no longer be paying attention to me. Uh, so it can be captured. It can be captured by a sudden loud noise or a sudden unusual stimulus. But apart from that, it's a function of your intention. And that's why when you do mindfulness meditation, you see, you're, you're looking at your, what's going on in your mind. What's behind the thoughts that you're having? Don't follow the thoughts, just go back, back, back to the intention. And then you come to your core, your core of being. You know? So you want to get away from having your intention be captured. As an extension of working therapeutically with us, I've developed this method I call alchemical divination. And alchemy is a tradition like shamanism and yoga that's of expansion of consciousness, working to heal the effects of the past, integrate the effects of past painful experiences into the present awareness of oneself and one's world, and the future. It's always past and future simultaneously or alternately because in order to heal something, you always have to go into the past, like it was a trauma or a childhood memory or a prenatal or you know, uh, whatever it is. You heal the effects and then integrate the changes of awareness that you have into the present awareness. And, but the other kind of possibility is what's, what in the shamanic tradition they call the visioning. Like, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What kind of life do I want to have? Including what kind of relationship do I want to have? What kind of health do I want to have? What kind of vision do I have for my life? Like the native traditions go on a vision quest. And then you integrate that into your present awareness. Because it's not enough just to have the vision, you see. You have to integrate the vision and make something of it. Otherwise, it's just kind of useless. It's a fantasy. It remains a fantasy. It's not realized. You want to realize the vision. In the book, Mind, Space, and Time Stream, I just wanted to mention that one. And then also, I wanted to mention one that's called The Life Cycle of the Human Soul, which is basically, it has five steps. It goes like this. It starts with incarnation. So this is way beyond psychology, because psychology doesn't recognize any of this. Uh, but, you know, all the world's spiritual traditions recognize that, of course, as a matter of course. Incarnation is when the soul chooses to incarnate. And then the next step is conception, where two parents come together and exchange their genes or match their genes together. And when it's at the physical organism, starts playing, then you get embryonic development and then fetal development and then birth. So incarnation, birth, and then death. So the whole life cycle in between there, and then the afterlife, and then reincarnation. So it's cyclical. There's now a lot of research beyond psychology research that deals with prenatal existence, and then that ties into spiritual traditions of the incarnation of the soul. And there's also a lot of experiences like near-death experience, like glimpses that people have had into the afterlife, what happens after that and the visions into another life. So my plea is that for research in this field needs to be multidimensional. So this ties into the whole integrating that the scientific view of the world needs to be integrated with a spiritual conception because not to do so is false and it's always remained completely limited. <laughs> so we are multidimensional being. We have spirit, mind, Heart, body, uh, spirit, mind, feelings, body. Some people divide it up into five or seven is a traditional number. You can divide it up, but you recognize spirit, and spirit is primary. Spirit is not an after effect. It's not a side effect. 
and you don't squeeze it into a double-blind placebo-controlled study. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. That is a different way of working. It works at a different level. But you have to acknowledge it. And I know that a lot of this workers who work in this field, in the scientific research field, totally acknowledge that. I remember I went, I went to one MAPS conference, and the organizers got a little pissed off at me because, um, actually, it was, it, was my, it wasn't I that did it, but my friend Jim Fadiman. He said, how many people here have participated in a legally approved uh, the psychiatric research study with MDMA or any other psychedelic drug. So about half a dozen people raised their hand. And then he said, how many people have experienced a psychedelic drug? And everybody raised their hand. <laughs> and the people were jumping up and down the conference organizers going, I don't know, we're going to lose our license, you know. So, but now, when you think about it, that's very strange, isn't it? Like, is that true of any other drug? You go to a medical psychiatric conference where they're talking about the latest tranquilizer or antibiotics, or what, <laughs> would that ever even become up, see? So there's a paradigm shift involved here. But I also want to say something about crime and criminology and politics. The use of drugs, whether it's cannabis or any other kind of drugs, that uh, is a category of crimes without victims. Now, if you're giving the drug to a minor or giving a drug some, to somebody without their consent, that's, of course, a crime. And we have laws on the books about that. But we don't need laws with crimes without victims. The area of private sexual behavior and the area of private food and drug ingesting behavior is the private sphere. And it's not anybody's business. That's why when... Uh, so... Uh, so sometimes, you know, in my talks, I give people ask me, can you talk about, you know, a recent psychedelic experience? I said, no, I'm not going to do that, because that's analogous to you two asking me, can you talk about your sex life with your wife? It's none of your business, if you get the point, right? In all good spirit, because this is a private sphere, and it should remain the private sphere, and the state should get out of it. And that, that would be a good agenda to have and to work towards that, you see. And in that sense, I agree with the libertarians. I don't buy all their politics. But that part of their politics is absolutely right on. One last point about that. We don't need a war on drugs any more than we need a war on terror. War on drugs is insane because it's like war on dandruff, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> Drugs are drugs, for Pete's sake. And, you know, uh, there should be medical control of the purity of drugs and pharmaceutical control. And, of course, you know, drugs that are used in medicine, you have prescriptions, you have protection of minors and all those kinds of things. And uh, quality control processes in, in place. And you have war on people that abuse drugs or use drugs to commit other crimes. Of course you need that. But you don't need a war on drugs itself. That's the wrong any more than you need a war on terror. That's even worse. Because war is terror, and terror is war, for Pete's sake. You, it's a totally insane. You know, this needs, this needs to be deal, dealt with by law and negotiation and diplomacy and setting up a framework of rules in society where these issues can be addressed in, you know, in a calm way. Finally, I want to say uh, something about Paracelsus, uh, who was a great 16th century physician. He was one of the first people that 
formulated the idea of specific medicines, specific remedies for specific illnesses. He worked with minors and so forth. He actually was able to cure people. And as a result, he was hounded out of different places. He had to keep fleeing because he actually cured people that the sort of uh, official doctors at the time who were tied into Aristotle and, and uh, the church doctrines of, didn't really know anything about medicine. They didn't do any observation of medicine. And they were very jealous of losing their... So it's interesting how some of these kind of political things go on, you know, no matter what. They're still going on similar things going on in our time. Also, he included astrology. In all his diagnosis or treatment, he always would do the horoscope of the person. So it's a completely cosmic, psychological, social, everything physical integrated like that. One of his sayings that I really like was the difference between the remedy and the poison is the dosage. The same a drug can be a remedy for an illness or it can be a poison. And this is something that a lot of people in the so-called psychedelic movement actually don't understand because they think more is always better. And that's totally not true. The best dosage is one that's between not enough and too much. <laughs> and what happens if you take too much is you get a dissociation not an, as, an expansion of consciousness, but a dissociation. A dissociation means zero awareness. And you look even in the research that's been done with certain drugs in, in Shulgin's compendium, and she understands this totally well. People take, for example, 5-methoxy-DMT. They take a certain dosage, and the person says, oh yeah, it was pretty good, you know, I had interesting insight. And then, then a certain higher dosage is said, well, gee, I don't know. I felt kind of weird, and then the next thing I knew, I looked at my watch, and 30 minutes had passed. And just nothing. In other words, dissociation means no experience, <laughs> nothing. It's a disconnect. So what's the usefulness of that, you see? A woman came to me and said, man, I took 500 bikes the other day, and she couldn't tell me one single thing of what she had during that experience. And I said, she should have given that drug to me. I could have made use of it, maybe divided it up into five doses. <laughs> So, with that, thank you. So I think what we're going to do, because we're running a little short on time, is go directly to audience questions. So if any of you have a question, remember, a question and a short one, tell it to me and I'll repeat it into the mic. So go ahead. So this is a question about the prison system and the war on drugs. Basically, yeah, I mean, I agree completely. It implies a completely rethinking the whole... Um, uh, criminology, you know, and I worked in the field of criminology when I was at, at, at Harvard because we did these studies of psilocybin with criminals, you know, the, but the prison system is not, is not interested in changing people's behavior, not at all. I mean, there are certain movements within it. Of course, there's reform movements, and they should be encouraged, but, you know, one big step would be to move drug use and drug possession, simple drug... You know, get out of the idea of crimes without victims. I think that's the formula. And so there is that group called the uh, Drug Policy Alliance. It's a very good group that deserves the support, like MAPS does. The Drug Policy Alliance looks at what are changes that are needed in policy and law to dealing with all kinds of um, drug behavior and drug abuse. So this is a question about um, any use of hypnotherapy along with the MDMA therapy. 
not in the studies that we're working on. So I can't, I, I can't really speak to it. I, I bet somebody else could probably answer it. We, with our study on, uh, for PTSD using marijuana, we've actually asked them to create different um, percentages for us for that study, which is NIDA is still blocking. CBD is uh, particularly significant among the 100 cannabinoids that exist because we, you can, with certain access to strains, particular strains, you can actually do something with this. He says, in the laboratory, they're going to work with uh, specific cannabinoids and combine them and so forth. And that's all well and good. THCV is emerging as very significant. And we actually have a strain that's dominant in that. But for the most part, you're not going to get a whole lot of other cannabinoids that have significant enough amounts uh, to be viable to work with unless you really tease them out and, and breed them over time, as GW Pharmaceuticals is. But you know, with CBD, it's available now. And people are using it now and reporting tremendous benefits. And that's the key thing. Uh, quickly, yes, there are different ratios for different cancers they're finding. And they're finding some work uh, with more THC than CBD is more effective for certain cancers. But there's a lot of factors and variables involved. Um, and the Simpson oil, I'm surprised even here it's 50-50. I thought it was THC dominant generally. And made in a pretty funky way with butane and all that. So it's, there's some questions about that. But yes, it's available now. You know, you need a chemist to, to work it up to, to um, calibrate the dose, the, the ratios. But it's, it's, in California, it's available if you know where to look. So, so the question is, um, which um, LSD or psilocybin is more useful in terms of curbing end-of-life anxiety? Well, uh, I think they're both equally effective. I mean, Aldous Huxley, you know, terminated his own life and his wife was there and gave him LSD intermuscularly at the end of life at his request. Coincidentally, on the same exact day as President Kennedy was shot in Dallas. So everybody who was in the room was fixated by this traumatic event going on uh, in Dallas while he was transiting to the other realm. But I think the people that um, uh, are interested in end of life, uh, preparing for death, it's not usually like, at, because it's difficult to know when, you will, when you're going to die. In fact, you don't know. That's part of what the thing is about dying. So preparation for dying is the idea. So in the psilocybin studies, the people who can be given a terminal diagnosis, you know, and so then uh, they've got three months to live or something like that. And so then this, the session is set up. And I think the studies have so far have been done. I think actually the Swiss did some studies with LSD as well, but psilocybin. Yeah. yeah, we did a study in Switzerland with LSD, and people had to have an end-of-life diagnosis, and that should be coming out for publication soon, but you can find information on our website, too. And yeah. It worked very well. I would just add one thing. I knew Laura Huxley uh, quite well, and she said she administered LSD to two dying people besides Aldous was one who had a very good experience, and the other person didn't, so it's yeah. not always... Uh, Ah, and so um, the question, what is the difference between indica and sativa? It's really how the plant looks. The, the differences between most of what you get are based on the terpenes, because pretty much all, as the uh, other person pointed out, most of the vast, vast majority of what you'll get on the street or in a medical marijuana dispensary is high THC. So it's the THC levels that don't explain the differences in the strains, and the differences in the strains are really attributed to the terpenes which give it a energetic quality, a more soporific quality, or more, uh, you know, it could be any number of different things. So that's more to the, the factor than indica and, and the sativa. They're all so promiscuously mixed, mixed anyway at this point that it's, you know, it's hard to distinguish. 
We have run out of time, I'm sad to say. So um, you, you come to the book signing and you can schmooze with these gentlemen and uh, catch Amy. So thank you very much. <laughs>